Although I don't remember the details, the particulars, or the exact situation, I do remember the first time I heard someone say to someone else, don't judge me. I thought it was very confusing. It was a strange thing to say. Why would he say that? Why not say, don't make fun of me, don't criticize me? Why don't judge me? Why does he consider that judging? How does someone even judge another person? Now, that was long before I was a mature Christian, and as I grew as a believer, like many of you, I came to understand why judging was so wrong, why judging is so sinful and yet so easy to do. It is so prevalent that the phrase, don't judge me, within the church has become a witty retort to respond to harmless teasing, while at other times a true convicting, albeit frustrating, accusation. Don't judge me. As believers, we know we are not to criticize. We are not to assume. We are not to judge others. We know when we feel like we're being judged. We know what that's like. We know we don't like it. But what exactly does it mean? What does it mean to judge someone else? And why is it so sinful? Well, this morning we continue in our study of James. And yes, on this Mother's Day, we are looking at a sermon on not judging others. We don't normally do a special Mother's Day sermon. We just continue uh, with whatever we're studying. Those of you who are here are here for a reason. Those of you who are stay, stay, stay for a reason. And it's because, largely because we preach the Word of God. And so we're going to continue to do that. And I feel, knowing the mothers who are in this room, I can't think of a better way to honor you than to continue in what we are studying. Funny note, maybe not so funny to some of you, and I think I'm, uh, it's become a, a pattern that I mention this every Mother's Day now. Uh, several years ago now, if, the, if you were around, can you believe it was, like, it was like seven or eight years ago that we were in Matthew? It was a long time ago. And I was just preaching through, and it was Mother's Day, and I said, I'm just going to hit the next passage in the Gospel of Matthew, and there's a passage on divorce. <laughs> and that's what I preached on Mother's Day. God forbidding divorce. And there were some people who were very excited to bring their moms on that special day. I don't think they were so excited by the time they left. Well, this morning we look at James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. James starts a whole new topic in these two verses, and in fact is contained in these two verses. He will not continue on this as we've seen many different series that we've gone through, he continues on a particular topic for several passages. This one is the one passage on judging. He says, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Well, we know that judging others is wrong, and this morning I want to give you three reasons for a human being to judge another human being, why that is wrong. And our outline this morning is three sinful deficiencies of human judgment. Three sinful deficiencies of human judgment. So we understand especially in light of God being the one righteous and holy judge, that when we judge others, it is deficient. And we're not talking about a judge in a human court of law, the honorable so-and-so. We're talking about when we criticize, judge one another. But we also know that these deficiencies are sinful because judging is sinful. So our first sinful deficiency of human judgment, judging others indicates enmity. Judging others indicates enmity. Begin in the beginning of verse 11, which says, Do not speak against one another, brethren. Now, although this morning's passage speaks of the sin of judging others, and he mentions that very word, judge, later on, James begins by prohibiting speaking against one another. But as we go on in the passage, we will see that he really equates the two. There is a connection. He will go on to say that judging others involves speaking against others. They are related, 
and both involve enmity of some sort. And we know this because of the grammar. He says, do not speak against. And that word in the Greek means to talk against someone in a negative way, to defame someone, or even to speak evil of someone. We often refer to it, and the Bible often refers to it as slander. That word slander in the English helps emphasize how harmful this kind of speech is, the nature of this speech, slander. Slander is done most often with malice. It is done with evil intent. In fact, that's what the word means. It's not just something you accidentally said, oh, I didn't realize that was negative. I didn't realize that bothered them. I actually thought it was a good thing. That's not what we're talking about. Slander here is done with malice. It is done with the purpose of evil intent, whether to hurt that person, whether to hurt that person's testimony, whether to beef up your own ego. We get this. This is nothing new. And you see these various nuances of this word, this action, brought out in other translations of the Bible. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you have the ESV, it says, do not speak evil against one another. In the NIV and the Legacy Bible, it says slander. And this relates to many issues that we've already seen throughout the epistle of James. Probably most notably, and what comes to mind is in chapter 3, he talked about the tongue and the human inability to control the tongue, specifically the dangers of speech, the dangers of the tongue. And of course, slander, speaking against one another, naturally falls under that umbrella. He has mentioned several times in different contexts the dangers of jealousy and selfish ambition. That's very appropriate here because right off the bat, we know that we often slander others or slander occurs because of pride. And jealousy and selfish ambition are manifestations of pride. They are rooted in pride. People want to speak negatively of others because they're jealous, because they look bad when someone else is praised or whatever it is. And again, this is something we're all too familiar with. James also, in his epistle, has warned us over and over again about being double-minded. Just last week, he said, basically, repent, you double-minded. We know that the one who is not fully focused on God will not love others as God loves others, and so they will be prone to slander and judging, which, as we will see very clearly in this passage, is not love. We don't slander out of love for someone. God's dislike of this form of speech has been clear from the beginning. All the way back in Leviticus 19.16, to the Israelites, He instructed, Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. In fact, if we jump ahead to the New Testament, I want you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to jump really quickly. I'm going to skim through most of chapter 1 all the way to highlight some of these wonderful blessings of what we have in Jesus Christ, who we are in Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1, to look at these wonderful truths about the Christian and what God has done for us. In verse 3, I'll read the entirety of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are born again through Jesus Christ. Skimming verse 4, it speaks of our unfading inheritance in heaven because of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it says we are protected by the power of God Himself. Verses 15 and 16 say we are to be holy for God is holy. Verses 18 and 19, jump down there, says we were not redeemed by perishable things, like gold and silver, which are very valuable, but by the precious blood of Christ. Look at verse 20. God foreknew us 
before the foundation of the world. Verse 22, because of all of this, we are called to have a sincere love of the brethren. All of those deep, wonderful, profound truths and blessings of the Christian life. Now he takes all of those and in chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, because of all of these things, because you're born again, because you have an inheritance, because you are to be holy because God is holy, because you are to have a sincere love of the brethren, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you are a Christian, you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And Peter is calling Christians to excel in their understanding of that salvation and their understanding of the character of God by longing for the Word of God. And in order to do that, he says, put away your sinful deeds, including slander. To put it another way, if you have truly been saved, if you have truly tasted the kindness of the Lord, stop having these bitter thoughts and feelings toward others, which leads to slander. And although he doesn't bring it out fully in this passage, we understand that it's not just our tongues and our speech that are disconnected from our minds and our hearts. We slander, we gossip, we talk against one another, we judge because of what's in our hearts. And so this isn't just about shutting up. This is about dealing with the sin in your heart. And notice, back in James chapter 4, he refers to his readers here as brethren. Now if you recall, James goes back and forth in how he refers to those who are reading his letter, often brethren or beloved brethren, but also things like double-minded sinners, as we just saw last week. And the context tells us whether he is sharply rebuking them or if he is calling them lovingly to obey and to submit to the Lord. Now, by calling them brethren, James not only shows his personal affection for them, but also tells us that it is slandering other Christians, Christians slandering Christians that he is particularly concerned about and confronting right here. This doesn't mean it's okay to slander non-Christians, but particularly within the church, we understand how dangerous and sinful this is. I want to give you a side note. Since this is the case, we know that all other commands in regard to how we are to treat one another as Christians come alongside this command. They do not negate it. So, for example... James, by saying do not judge, do not speak against one another, is not banning the confronting or exposing of sin in a biblical manner, which we are commanded to do in certain contexts. He does forbid gossiping about it, judging someone for their sin, or flat out making something up and lying about something someone did not do or did do. This also doesn't mean that we throw discernment out the window. We need to be discerning. We need to be able to see someone and say, is there something wrong that I need to lovingly address? And you get that that's very different than sinful judging, sinful slander. You probably also know that derogatory speech about others is most commonly practiced when the person that is being spoken against is not present. We talk behind their backs is what we call it. This is sinful in its own right, but is especially gross if you talk behind someone's back critically and when they're in your presence are very nice and pleasant and complimentary. That's hypocritical. That's deceitful. That's lying. Encouraging to the face, critical when they're not around. 
Proverbs 10.18 speaks to this very action. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When the topic of your conversation is another person, we need to be extra careful. We like to talk about other people. It is, in fact, one of the most common themes of Christian conversation. And so you need to ask yourself, why? Unfortunately, often the reason other individuals even come up at all in conversation is because there is an intent to slander, to gossip. We need to be people who talk about others for the sake of praising them behind their backs, not criticizing them. And friends, that praise then needs to become encouragement to their faces. At other times, other com- others come up in casual conversation in a neutral way. Just a normal conversation. Oh, I was having lunch with these people. I, oh, I went to this thing. Oh, who was there? This so, so-and-so was there. You're just recounting a story. But even in those moments as believers, we need to be extra vigilant because saying something negative about those people can easily slip in to what just became a roll call of who was there at lunch became, oh, by the way, I got to tell you what so-and-so did. It was so rude. It was so bad. Oh, and then going back to the story of what you were originally saying. It may not be outright slander, either in content or intention, but speaking against someone can involve any sort of derogatory, careless, or thoughtless word. In other words, even if your intent is not, I am going to make this person look bad, if just a careless thought, a careless word about someone can actually be speaking against them. This includes, and this is very important, because I think there are many times where we have done this. This includes not just slandering things that you have seen and witnessed. This includes also assuming negative things about others. We see something, and because of our sinful hearts, we tend to go to the worst-case scenario. We have trouble assuming the best. We always assume the most negative. When someone does not show up to church, it's not, I hope they're okay. They must be doing something noble. It's, oh, they're just a slacker. They're just lazy. Mother's Day brunch is more important than worshiping God or whatever it is. We just always go to the worst thing possible. If you're going to assume, train your heart and mind to assume the best. Give the benefit of the doubt. This is what it means when Paul says in defining love, one of the 15 characteristics is that true love believes all things. That is the idea of giving the benefit of the doubt. Those are just some examples that I think that we can easily fall prey to. Sinful thinking, sinful speech. We need to check our motivations. We need to check why. Oh, guys, listen. One of the most powerful tools in your Christian life in dealing with sin, in growing in the Lord, is simply asking why. Why did I do that? Why am I frustrated right now? Why am I stressed? Why when I see that person do I want to walk away? Because when you ask why then you get past just the external, just the actions and words and into the heart and figure out why do I do that? And of course, the why always needs to be pressed in between the pages of Scripture. So check our motivations when it comes to talking about others. Are you trying to tear down or are you trying to build up? Now, if you struggle with slander, you are doing both. You're tearing down others to build yourself up. We need to build up others. And you can see how this goes back to pride and jealousy and selfish ambition. Remember at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, these things were the cause of division, fights, quarrels in the church. James even mentions murder. And it starts in the heart, but the next step involves the tongue. 
One of the key sins we must be careful of is having a critical spirit. If you find yourself automatically thinking of what's wrong, what you don't like, what bothers you, what that person should be doing instead, then you might have a critical spirit. The reality is that I have interacted with godly, godly men and women. And they have been so criticized by their parents their whole lives. And some of them are now married to a husband or wife who also just continues the criticism that they had, that their spouse had from their in-laws or their parents. These people, you can't even encourage them or praise them without them thinking it's some sort of passive-aggressive or veiled insult because they just assume everyone's criticizing them. We need to break the trend. Some of us are like this. Some of us just are naturally critical because that's how we were raised. This is not a knock on cultures, but you know that there are entire cultures that this is the way they raise their children. And it causes havoc in their hearts, their relationship with God. It causes trouble with their relationship with others. It definitely causes strain with their relationship with their parents after those children are adults. We need a break. If this is you, if this is how you were raised, if this was your culture, break the pattern because you are in Christ. Not in whatever country your parents are from. Your primary Ethnicity and characterization is citizen of heaven. Your parents did the best that they could. They did what they knew. This is not, of course, to call you to judge them, (laughs) to criticize them, but to look forward and to seek and to ask why and realize if you are a critical person that in Jesus Christ you have the ability to change that. Here's the sad reality. If I were to ask most Christians to get a pen and paper, I said, when I click this button on this timer, you have 10 seconds. First, think of the person you're close to, your spouse, a parent, a child, whoever it is. When I click this button, you have 10 seconds to write down everything you like about them, the things that make you smile, the things that make you happy. Click Now I'm going to give you another 10 seconds to as quickly as you can write down everything that bothers you about them, that you think they need to fix about their lives, that they need to do better. And for most of us, that second list is going to be longer than the first list. We battle sin. We battle a critical spirit. We need to understand that everything we have is a gift from the Lord And it starts there in how we view God and how we view the relationships we have in our lives. Remember, James is particularly talking about those within the church, especially as a community of believers. Look, we're all sinners. We are all running the race, and it's a long and arduous race. We are all fighting the fight. We are all struggling to be a testimony of the love of God to the world as it is. We are in a spiritual battle not only within ourselves, but together as an army, as a unit against the ever-increasing wickedness and darkness of the world. So why would you want to hurt another soldier's reputation when reputation, we call it testimony, is one of our most effective weapons? We need to be careful. Do not speak against one another. And going back to James's main point, when we talk about people in this manner, we are essentially judging them because we think we are better than them in some way. We are in a place to say that they are wrong and we are right. And that leads us to our next point, our next sinful deficiency of human judgment. Number two, judging others implies Egotism. Judging others implies egotism. Look at the rest of verse 11. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. 
I've already talked about the pride involved with slandering others. The reality of what this entails is drawn out by James here. There are people who have sought out advice and counsel from me as their pastor, as a brother in Christ, because they know they have a tendency to judge others. And without me even probing, they will say, I judge others, I struggle with this because I know I'm proud. I don't think this is anything new to us, that judging others involves being proud. But what James does is he heightens it here and says, you're not just being proud against another person, you're being proud against the law of God. It can be confusing, stick with me, let's see what this means. The connection between speaking against a brother and judging a brother is this. When we slander them, we essentially are measuring their character, finding them lacking, and then condemning them with our words. Who does that? A judge. Those are all components of judgment. You look at the facts or what you think are the facts. You make a judgment and then you declare a verdict. When you judge others, what you are doing is judging others. You are taking the position of a judge. And although we are never given the position or title of judge, we quickly and easily and happily put on the robe and take up the gavel and perform duties never meant for us. In other words, you are putting yourself in a place of superiority of that other person such that you think you can decide what is wrong or right if that person is guilty or innocent. You stand at the judge's bench hammering the gavel And as evidenced by your slander, the verdict in your mind is always guilty. And in so doing, you serve as a judge. And when you serve as a judge, you as a Christian are confusing the hierarchy between man and the true judge, God, and His law. And this is why James says, speaking against and judging a brother in Christ is the same as speaking against and judging the law. This point brings us into the bigger picture of what those actions are truly doing. This is not just about a casual conversation that doesn't hurt anyone, just a passing little comment. Oh, don't tell anyone I said that. There's always a bigger issue. And here the bigger issue is that you are judging not just the person, you are judging the law. How so? Because when you slander and judge another, in that very action, you are using the law to condemn someone, and in that very act of condemning with the law, you are actually disregarding the law yourself. This can be confusing if you're taking the word judge and you're comparing it to a human judge, like in the court of law in Redwood City for San Mateo County. As we will see in the next verse, what James is going to say is the only judge is God himself. So when you take that, what he's saying here in verse 11, in that context, this all makes sense. Then it makes sense why someone who is a judge of the law does not actually have to practice the law. Because that only applies to God. It doesn't apply to human judges. Human judges still need to drive the speed limit and not murder and things like that. So as we go through this, understand that the alternative to you being the judge is God being the judge. So when you slander, it's not loving. And Jesus says the whole law depends on the command to what? Love. Paul says love is the fulfillment of the whole law. And when you slander, it's not loving, it violates the law the law of love. And when you violate the law of love, you are in essence saying that you are not bound by it because you are above it. By judging, you become the judge of the law. You apply it to others. You expect others to live by it. When they don't, you judge them, but you say, I'm not bound by it. You don't actually say that, but by judging, you are practicing that. Let me put it another way. You cannot judge a person and love that person. It is one or the other. 
because the very act of judging someone is unloving. And since love is the summary of the law, you are not just unlovingly judging another person, you are saying in that very act that the law doesn't apply to you. You are above the law. Who's above the law? The judge. That is why James goes on to say that you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Let's think about it. As a believer, when you slander, when you gossip, when you condemn another believer, what are you condemning them for? For not being worldly enough? For not sinning enough? No. We slander them because we think they miss church too often or they spend too much money or they get mad too often or they're a bad husband or a bad wife or a bad parent. In other words, we slander them, we judge them for not fulfilling the law of God. So we take that very law of God, use it against others, and in so doing, we are disobeying that same law. Thus implying, again, that the law applies to everyone but you. Because when we so blatantly fail to obey the law of love, then we are acting as if its authority does not apply to us. And I think we can all agree that that's egotistical. Not just in thinking we are better than others, or even that we appoint ourselves as judge and jury, It's egotistical because we inherently judge rather than obey the law. Because if you truly obeyed the law and you submitted to it, you placed yourself under it as an obeyer of the law and not a judge of the law, then you wouldn't judge others because you would love. You would be gracious. You would be forgiving. You would not slander. You would tame the tongue. And if that idea of you judging others in a simple word of frustration or anger means that you are judging the law of God, if that fact is not shocking enough to you to get you to stop judging and slandering, then the last point will. Our last sinful deficiency of human judgment is that judging others involves exclusivity. We've seen that judging others indicates enmity, Judging others implies egotism. And finally, judging others involves exclusivity. Verse 12, there's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? The final point brings us where we always want to end when we're talking about any issue, especially about sin, and that is God. You always want to keep asking yourself why or whatever question until you get to God. To be clear, James has not said that we shouldn't judge because you are not one of the few God has chosen on this planet to judge. No, he's saying you shouldn't judge because nobody has been chosen to judge. Only God himself is the judge. James first, though, says there is only one lawgiver, referring to God, of course. He starts there because of what he has just said about our relationship to the law when we judge others. Nobody is above the law except for God. Be careful there. When we say someone on earth, like a corrupt police officer or someone like that, say that guy thinks he's above the law, that's something illegal. That's something wrong. That's something corrupt. That's not what we mean. That's not what I mean when I say God is above the law. When I say God is above the law, it means he does not need to obey the law because the law is given by him to give his people guidance because his people are sinners. They need rules to know how to deal with their sin, how to deal with our inherent desire to rebel against God. He is inherently good. He doesn't need rules to follow. He is the rule. He isn't under the law. He is the law. He is the one lawgiver. The law reflects his character. It's inherently who he is. You don't have to make a rule to tell me, oh, you think you're above the law? 
Why aren't you following the rule that says you have to have Chinese DNA in your body? I have no choice. It's who I am. And that's why God doesn't need the law. He doesn't need to follow the law. He doesn't need to try to follow the law. He is the law. Secondly, though, James goes on to say he is the only judge. In other words, he is the only one who applies the law. He is the one who takes his character and tells people how to apply it. The same law which he has put into place. And by the way, the word one, which describes both lawgiver and judge here, is emphatic in the Greek, which means James is especially stressing that there is only one It doesn't matter what you think, how you feel, what you do, what others call you, how others treat you. When it comes to giving the law and judging sin, all others are excluded. You're not allowed. You're not supposed to do it. And in case you had any doubt about why, James goes on to explain that God is the one who is able to save and to destroy. We're talking about spiritual things here. Again, obviously, there are human judges in courtrooms. This is all part of God's plan for mankind. Like it or hate it, want to take it or leave it, we understand that though there are loopholes and it is not perfect, God has created governments to allow for social stability to be a sword, the Bible calls it. Right? There's still a lot less crime that there could be, knowing that everyone is depraved, knowing that there are police, there are jails, and there's a death penalty for some. It keeps people from doing things. People don't refrain from crimes in our society simply because they're good people. Many people don't commit crimes because they're scared of the consequences. And so there are human judges that God has put in place. Even Moses put judges because Israel was too big. They were all coming to him. Remember this? They're all coming to him for every little problem. And his wise father-in-law was like, Moses, is this what's been going on? There's no way. There's hundreds of thousands of people. And he says, you need to appoint judges so he could take care of it. And so we understand this is a biblical thing. Sinful, yes. They're depraved men, yes. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we are talking about When we say that we are not to judge and there is only one judge, it is within the realm of spiritual things. In that, only God can save and only God can send to hell. And that's what he means by destroy. This is not not proof of annihilationism, right? The, The belief that hell is temporary and eventually all those in hell will just cease to exist. The Bible is very clear that eternal condemnation is eternal. Destroy means to destroy their soul, to condemn into eternal punishment. Only God can do that. No matter how much you want to judge or play the role of someone who is superior to others, you would never claim that you can send someone to heaven or send someone to hell. You would never claim that you could save someone. Only God can do that. And so James is emphasizing, look, stop judging because there's only one judge. By the way, if you need to be reminded of what that means, he's the only one who can send to heaven or hell. And so, Christians, here's a piece of advice, okay? You can judge in, in every way that James is saying not to. You can judge, you can slander, you can gossip as soon as you have the ability to send to heaven or hell. Until then, you are not allowed. And since there is only one, he says, who do you think you are setting yourself up to be by judging others, slandering others? He says, who are you who judge your neighbor?" When we do that, not physically, 
but you are essentially, in your heart, pushing God off of His throne and sitting there, saying, I get to do this, just for that one person. You saw, God, what He said about me. Get off the throne. It's my turn. That's what you're doing. You are usurping the role of God because we have clearly seen that it is only God who is allowed to do this. By the way, I know that's a little bit of a jarring picture. I need to mention that that's essentially what you're doing every time you sin, whether it's judging or not. When you put it that way, you understand this final question, who are you who judge your neighbor? If I can put this in modern terms, who in the world do you think you are? How dare you? What do you think you're doing? On a practical level, God's exclusivity reminds us of how thankful we are that He is the only one who can judge because He is the only one who knows all things. You know, when you're tempted to slander someone because you see, think they have done something wrong, we should look to this. And rather than feeding our anger and our desire to gossip and feeding our egos, we should rest on the fact that God knows all things and be thankful. Thank you, God, because I love this person so much, I really hope I was wrong, but you know all things and you'll take care of it. That is how we should view. This is how love is practiced. You don't know what's going on in another's heart. You don't know why they did what they did, said what they said. And even if they told you, that still doesn't give you the right to judge. Many times we don't even know what they did or said. We're just slandering and gossiping based on our best guess, going back to assuming the worst. You're going to dethrone God in your heart for a guess? For an assumption? to appease your jealousy, your anger, your boredom, your critical spirit, your desire to have conversation, to make conversation. But on the flip side, we can also take comfort in the fact that He is judge and He will judge. Again, not to say that we're to throw discernment out the window. Believers and especially elders of the church are called to protect the purity of the church through having discernment confronting sin, church discipline. We need to do those things. We are called to be discriminating. We are called to be wise, not worldly wise, wise by studying the Bible, knowing what God wants. We are called to sharpen and admonish one another. Biblical fellowship requires discernment, requires seeing what is good, what is bad, so that we can sharpen one another. But when it comes to eternal issues, we can rest assured that God knows what He's doing. And we'll take care of it. And the beauty of it is that He will do it perfectly and without bias, with knowing all things based on the truth. Not just what we saw, but what He knows in the heart of every man. Knowing exactly what He desires of man. Knowing exactly what He meant when He gave us the Scriptures. What James is saying here is voiced in other ways all over the New Testament. And I want to finish with these passages. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? Just think of the last time you struggled with judging someone and think about how silly and petty it was. Would you really want God to judge you according to that standard? Luke 6, 37 and 38. Luke 6, 37 and 38. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Do you know what that means? God says he will, he will bless you so much. Right? This is not necessarily material blessings. You know this from the past couple months in James. 
But He will bless you so much that it's, it's as if, if you were to fill a jar. You guys do this, right? You got half a cup left. The jar seems full. You press down. You shake it. It falls down. There's more room. You can put more in. That's the image that He's given us. And even after that, what does it say? It's running over. And he closes by saying, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Romans 2, 1 and 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. That's basically what James has been saying. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. As believers, we won't be condemned, but we know that there will be a judgment day. The Bema judgment, remember? The Bema seat, where our rewards are, are good and bad deeds are measured for reward in heaven. And then finally, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This is a good reminder. That was 1 Corinthians 4-5. That's a good reminder, not so much in judging others, right? I think a lot of times when we slander others, we're, we're quick to repent. We're quick to ask for forgiveness. We understand that it was wrong. You're in a bad mood. It wasn't what you thought. Someone encouraged you to talk to the person. So it all ends up good. But this last verse about waiting until the Lord returns because He will evaluate and judge everyone's hearts is kind of what I was saying earlier. We'll say, just trust God. He'll take care of it. He will take care of it one day when He returns. I believe for us, and, and this is just my opinion, so don't take it as Scripture, I believe this would practically apply more to what we see on television. I know it's hard with politicians, false teachers. We want to judge them, slander them, condemn them. Again, there's a place for warning others, bringing up names if necessary to warn others so they aren't fallen, falling into false teaching. But again, even in that, we're not in a place to judge, to condemn, to slander. God will take care of them. The false teachers, God will take care of them. The corrupt politicians, God will take care of them. The politicians you love, if they're not believers, God will take care of them. He will expose it all. And by the way, you're not going to be standing there like bailiff, like, yeah, yeah, told you, I knew it. <laughs> right? Just cut it out. Stop. Let him do what he is going to do. And when it comes to one another, we need to love one another. We need to stop slandering. Look, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. We're all sinners. You're going to get mad. You're going to say things. But be an upright Christian and go and apologize. Hey, I was mad at you. I know it wasn't your fault. I said this to this person. I've already told them I was frustrated. I'm sorry I did this. Just, and then you move on. You act like nothing happened. Right? We, some of you know that I have, uh, I have a middle son who's got a lot of health problems. Okay? Many sons with many health problems. A middle son has had health problems for the longest. Right? In fact, the, the surgery he had earlier, thank you for praying, by the way, he's not at church today because the glue that came off and so his incision is open. And so he's in a lot of pain because the inside of his flesh is rubbing against his clothing. And so naturally, not that we just let it go, he gets angry. He's not a believer. He gets angry. He has meltdowns. He physically tries to harm us because he's in pain. And what do you do when you're in pain? You want to inflict pain on others, especially when you're a child. You don't have the Lord. And sometimes, and I, I please understand, I'm not trying to set myself up or my, my wife and I up as the, the models of integrity and holiness. But he'll go off. He'll calm down. He'll feel bad. And he wants to come back and join us, but now he's embarrassed. 
And I'll whisper to his brothers, I say, when he comes back, don't mention anything and just act like nothing happened. The reason we're often afraid to ask for forgiveness is because the rest of us don't move on and act like nothing happened. We then hold grudges and we slander. Can you believe he's tried to apologize to me after saying all those things? We're all sinners. Okay, we, we're not LeBron James yelling at his teammates because he thinks they did something wrong. He's the boss. He's the big man. I'm not into sports. I just see him doing that. <laughs> you know, we just, hey, thanks. I'm in the mud too. I'm not going to criticize your dirty pants because I'm in the mud too. Just move on. Let's help one another. Stop judging, and when you do, be quick to repent, ask forgiveness, and the rest of us, be quick to forgive. I know, easier said than done. We have feelings. We're angry. We hold on to things. But look, we're Christians. We have better places to put our emotions. We have better things to hold on to. We have a cross to carry. Get rid of petty grudges and lack of forgiveness. Three sinful deficiencies of human judgment. Judging others indicates enmity. It implies egotism. And it involves exclusivity that belongs to God. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sinners and it feels good to judge each other. You know our hearts. You know our temptations. You know our wickedness. Help us to not just stop judging, but to replace that attitude with humility and love for one another. Don't just guard our lips, Lord. Guard our hearts. Help us to repent of these sins. Help us to look to ourselves to hate our own sin first. And then when we deal with our sin, to help others to repent in a loving and gracious way. Whether it's because of this sermon or because of any other conviction or just because we want to honor you, help us to reconcile with anyone that we are, have broken relationships with in this room or within the greater kingdom of God even outside the kingdom of God. Help us to be those who are quick to repent, quick to take back our words, to follow up and follow through. Use us so that we build up, we edify. And even the, the difficult things like confronting sin and admonishing, may we do it in a way that desires to build up and glorify you. Help us to stop judging, stop speaking against one another. Help us to not even think those thoughts but just be overwhelmed with gratitude for the family of God that you have redeemed and given in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand as we...